1: Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, Nate welcomes back Susan Whiteall to discuss her book, Women of Motown and Oral History. Nate and Susan talk about the competitive yet familial atmosphere nurtured by Motown Patriarch Barry Gordy, the backstage rivalry between Diana Ross and virtually every other woman at Motown, and much more. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
2: It's time to let it roll. And today we're welcoming back in front of the show, Susan Whitehall, to discuss her book Women of Motown and Oral History. Susan, welcome back to the show.
0: Oh, I'm glad to be here, Nate. Thanks for having me.
2: Sure. This is one of our favorite topics. Motown's absolutely one of the biggest accomplishments in, in American cultural history in our book, so uh, one we're really excited to talk about. And the women of Motown obviously contributed a great deal, but um, – in Your introduction, you have a line that I wanted to, to ask you about. That you, you say the label's strength was its depth of talent and a competitive atmosphere nurtured by the paternal Gordy. That's kind of an ironic intro to a book about the women of Motown, don't you think?
0: Well, he was a man, that's why he was being paternal, you know. <laughs> Fair he, enough. Um, but he was a man who grew up in a family of very dominant sisters, and he will tell you that over and over again, that they were his bosses. <laughs> they knew more than he did, and they basically told him what to do, <laughs> told him he was wrong constantly, educated him. So, yeah, he was paternal, that he was re- kind of recreating the Gordy family dynamic at Motown, and that was a successful dynamic.
2: Clearly. And, and the competitive aspect of that, I mean, was there a rivalry between the sisters that we know of?
0: Um, between his sisters, I don't, you know, it was a, a it's an interesting thing. It, this follows through for Motown too. It was competitive, but they were also supportive of each other, because he says while his sisters were his biggest critics, especially Esther, um, they also they would turn around and then be completely supportive with what he ended up doing after he took their advice. So it's the same thing at Motown. Motown. Acts are very close, most of them. They, But they did have this competition every week with who would get to have the singles released and which of the women got more attention in terms of Gordy and the producers and who got the better songs. But they really do have a bond. So it's it's not a negative competition. Somehow he was able to keep it on a positive track for the most part. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah for the most part and we'll get to some of the, there's there's one <laughs> one woman in particular who gets a lot of fire in this book and so the book focuses on 11 different women who played roles at motown mostly as singers but some of them were also backroom players as songwriters and the first one mabel john who's the sister of little willie john that we discussed in your previous visit on the show she had an interesting insight because she was coming from a musical family the john family uh you know, was learning the business at the same time as the Gordy family.
0: Yeah. Definitely. And what,
2: what was her insights on the Gordy family and, and her relationship with Motown?
0: It was a little bit of what I, what I was saying about the sisters, but also she had a very close relationship with Barry's mother, um, Bertha, because she worked for her before she ever knew Barry. She helped, um, Bertha had a job, She she had several professions. Um, She was a realtor. She was uh, very entrepreneurial, as all the Gordys were. But she also sold insurance, which was a door-to-door thing at the time, very common, especially in uh, the city. So um, Mabel would go along as a high school girl with her and help her out with clerical things and also learn the business. And she, she really picked up this entrepreneurial spirit that, the Gordys had, and she could see later on when she got into contact again with Barry's mother, and Barry's mother said, "Hey, you've got to you got to contact my my son. He might be able to take you somewhere on a, on this musical journey you seem to want to do." And it was a very fruitful relationship, even though it, for the first several years he didn't record her, but he was coaching her, and she was driving him around town because, of course. Famously, he never drove. So she would drive him around town in her boyfriend's car. <laughs> and so she was sort of an assistant to BG. And um, he, in the meantime, he was coaching her because his sisters were hanging out in the, the high-end clubs, and they were seeing the great acts like Dakota Staten and uh, Sarah Vaughn. And he would take Mabel there and tell her to instruct herself by what she was seeing and to refine her act. And he also played piano for her. Um, She would do live gigs before, again, before he was recording her. And uh, that culminated the the very peak for her was when she opened for Billie Holiday in the late fifties. And Barry, he played, he played piano. He accompanied her. So there's some famous pictures from that time, from that night of, uh, uh, you know Lady Day and BG and and Mabel so I I can't even imagine being at the club to see all that but uh, that was that was their beginning and I think they she came uh, Mabel came from a big musical family like um, probably more musical than the Gordys were in terms of performing music but it was a very similar kind of situation. It was a large family. They were they had a hardworking dad, and uh, you know, she learned from him. And I think he, she was also very helpful to to Gordy.
2: And the next woman that you spotlight is Claudette Robinson, who was the first lady of Motown. There's some some contention over who was the first lady of Motown, but Claudette was in the miracle. She was Smokey's wife, and. She she claims the title. Uh, Mabel John also claims the title. A few other a few other contenders. <laughs> but one of the things yeah. I thought there were two things I thought were the most interesting about the the Claudette Robinson segment. And one is the relative amateurism of the Miracles when they first hit the Apollo on the East Coast. They had not benefited oh, yeah. from the from the Motown charm school and co- yeah. choreography Where- lessons, et cetera.
0: Well, everybody thinks and talks about, you know, the famous Motown school and how groomed they were and the, the gowns and all that, but it's easy to forget unless you're old enough to remember like I am, and you saw the acts in those early days, and you can see them on uh, YouTube now, that they they were, you know, they look like kids, which they were. They look like teenagers who had made their own dresses, perhaps, and or had their moms make the dresses, and they were... They were just doing it. They were dancing on stage, like the Marvelettes on stage were just dancing like you would at a teenage fat cop. And um, the Marvel of the Miracles were not known for their dancing, especially Smokey. Although Claudette, Claudette will defend him and say he was a great slow dancer, but he was not a great dancer like a Mick Jagger front man. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> And Gordy likes to tell the story of how one time they weren't going over well at the Apollo, and Smokey was desperate to entertain the audience, so he just started dancing and flailing away, and that was even worse. So. <laughs> now Claudette, when I told her that, she claimed not to remember that, but
2: you know. <laughs> <laughs> judicious <Maybe> memory. <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, maybe she's being loyal. I mean, she admits. She describes their um, moves, which were very basic, move to the left, move to the right, then, you know, do this. But that, that was obviously before Charlie Atkins came along and was giving all of them instruction. And it's kind of fun to see that in the earlier videos that you can see on YouTube when, when they were not as, um, not as groomed, not as predictable, perhaps.
2: Yeah, those are fun watches for anybody who hasn't checked that out. It's it's an insight into the early days of Motown and Motown as kids. And, and this, you know, Smokey Robinson and Barry Gordy were very much like brothers. Smokey stayed with him uh, as a, a high-level lieutenant to this day at, at Motown. And and Claudette has real insight. And one thing that I thought was really interesting in Claudette's remembrances was that she, uh, pipes up and has, You know, you hear such horror stories about black acts touring the South, but it wasn't all that horrible. And then she goes into basically telling a litany of the same terrible stories we've always heard about segregated dining areas and and Uh traumatic experiences on the bus. And with her particular health circumstances where she lost a number of children to miscarriage, uh, you know, the point that Smokey wrote one of his most famous songs for her about that, What is your take on on Claudette's experience of touring in the South? Was it
0: as bad as it sounds? Well, of course it was bad. I think she was... um, She's a, a particularly positive person and I think she just is... Everyone sees things through their own particular lens and she was having a lot of fun. She was protected by an all-male group consisting of her husband and her cousin, Bobby Rogers, and her very close friends in the miracles. So she perhaps, you know, admittedly, she says she, she didn't have some of the danger or, you know, the fear that some of the other female acts might have had. And there also was no, nobody would mess with her because she was Smokey's wife terms of i'll knock on her door late at night and see if she wants to come party you know so she was in a unique position but um she does indeed you know describe some of the bad things that happened in the south but i think there's so many good things that happened to her back then she's the type of person that who focuses on on the better things and uh you know like with her her children she was able to finally have two children thanks to by the way uh Gynecologist, whom she shared with Aretha, Doctor Ziegelman. <laughs> <I didn't laughs> name him. I didn't name him in the book. He was actually my doctor too. How wonderful. crazy! Small Dr. world. Se- I know. It's, Detroit is a very small world. Doctor Seymour Ziegelman. He was able to help Smokey and Claudette, and uh, they have a wonderful little family. So I think it, she, she kind of is just a very sunny person, if you get to know her.
2: And let's hear a little bit of, of the miracles with this this is um, shop around, which yeah. some, some people have claimed that Claudette actually Barry Gordy in fact claimed that Claudette was the voice on the first version of Shop Around, but this is the second featuring smoke.
0: Yeah, that's the first version, not you know, it's not the version that you're you hear in the that the single and uh yeah, the recorded version that everybody knows.
2: Yeah, and uh, I but... couldn't track down the first version unfortunately. So We'll yeah. Hear, hear,
0: right. But there were so many, you know, they would do stuff like that. Um, she didn't quite remember it either. It was, it's Gordy who remembers it that way. That's the way some of these things are, you know, you have people remembering things differently, but she, it it did provoke an interesting discussion from her about, um, you know, how her voice and Smokey's would sound alike to some people, but also how they differed. And that, that, enabled her to fill in for him, of course, when he got really sick with the Hong Kong flu, as they called it back then. So she was able to go on stage and on the road when they were on the bus tour and be Smokey because people didn't know back then as, as, well, as much who did what in the, in the group. So Smokey being sort of a unisex name, <laughs> she was able to go on as Smokey while he was back here at Henry Ford
2: Hospital. Okay, well, let's.
0: Smokey always, always had trouble. See, He always had allergies and he had respiratory
2: issues. And the Hong Kong flu is similar to what we're going through now with the coronavirus. Hopefully, it won't be as bad as the Hong Kong flu was in, in the early 60s, which uh-huh. killed hundreds and nearly killed Smokey Robinson. So let's hear the miracles real quick. Let's shop around with Smokey Robinson on i right. a Now with the Miracles featuring Smokey Robinson lead vocals doing "Shop Around, which his wife Claudette Robinson played a big role in the original demo, recorded, then re-recorded in the middle of the night at Barry Gordy's behest, according to Legend and Tales. But up next... We've got a woman who's a backroom figure at Motown and a key figure in the early days. I'm talking about Janie Bradford, who was somebody that was not in the original edition of your book, but in the second edition, which came out in 2017, you will add her in. And I think it's a key thing because this was a young woman who co-wrote "Money," one of the first. It wasn't a Tamla. It was on uh, Aunt Annie, I think. Annie's, Barry Gordy's sister's label not Tamil or Motown but it's one of the definitive Motown hits co-written by Barry Gordy and Janie Bradford and this is a, a girl who introduced herself to Barry Gordy when she was 14 with some braggadocio about being a songwriter and he actually followed it up went to her home and asked to see her work
0: yeah well that was the way things happened back then it was a very you know um Gordy was looking for writers. That's how he he found Smokey by a chance meeting, and uh, he was particularly interested. He was still looking for his his big female artist, and he he always had a high opinion of women because of his sisters, they're, they're his talented sisters. So Janie, being a kind of a tall girl and very assertive and very confident, that's that really appealed to him, and so very a, a very typical motown narrative happened in that she came to work at motown of course but she worked there as a receptionist and secretary while she was also writing songs so she was uh you know people there would do all, all sorts of things the couple of uh, um spinners later on you know they would pick up people at the airport when they weren't having a lot of hits so, so, <laughs> so it, it was like people would pitch in and uh so, yeah, um, he knew Janie was, was talented, and he, he went out and sought her out and wanted to see the what she had.
2: And I thought one one quote from her was pretty interesting. It, it, she said that he would work a lot, and he being Barry Gordy, with the writers in the beginning, but after the second year, you were kind of on your own.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, he wanted to get you going, and then he was on to the next thing. It was partly uh, – you know, uh, short attention span. <laughs> but he had, he had stuff to do. He had other people to figure out and he, he could not be babying you all the way through. He wanted, he'd bring you on. And it was such a creative atmosphere too, that if you had what it takes, you would be able to hit the ground running and find people to work with. And and you would do what you would do. Well, you didn't need him constantly hovering. Now, in the of course in that, Early time period he was he actually played piano on money, so he was a way very connected with with all of the recording sessions, and his hands were on the controls for a lot of those recording sessions he had learned how to produce how to engineer um watching people over at United Sound here in Detroit before Motown had his own recording studio he watched a lot of jazz producers and people like that um Little Willie John sessions over there. Um, so Barry was involved very personally, but as far as the writing goes, you were kind of on your own. You had to, as Janie did, you had to find someone to write with. You had to just pitch in, or you would kind of be left behind.
2: And the next figure that well that we cover in the book, Mary Wells, is kind of a two-part segue. First, she's an artist that was unsuccessful under Barry Gordy's direction. But when Smokey Robinson took yeah. over and steered her away from what you call the funky wail of the blues that Barry Gordy had been uh, giving Mary Wells and, and gave her a real pop touch.
0: Yeah. You know, it's he hadn't quite given up on the bluesy thing, which he tried with Mabel John, and it just didn't work. She sounded too worldly, too womanly for what Motown – Was doing, and it wasn't a direction that he took Motown on. It was really the market determined who was going to be successful, and the teenage market wanted younger, more girlish voices. It was the the height of the girl group era, which was, you know, the Marvelettes helped kick off in 1961. Way back then. But they wanted these younger sounding voices, not a womanly voice talking about love gone bad and her man done her wrong, you know. And But he was still with Mary. He, he took her with Mabel John to New York and had that earlier session where he worked her so hard. Her voice was all scratchy and she's screaming. It's hard for me to hear Mary at that point because the Mary I grew up with is, is the softer, sweeter, smoky, produced Mary Wells, which I think was genius. He knew what to do with her. And that was exactly what the teenage market wanted. Um, When we heard My Guy, oh my God, that was
2: a perfect (laughs) song. (laughs) Absolutely. And kind of the tragedy of Mary Wells is that she was one of the first stars to be produced at Motown, but also one of the first to leave Motown. And a lot of the people discussing her in this oral history blame her Bad choices in men and, and a domineering <laughs> yeah. husband.
0: Well, when you have a husband who doesn't know how to read or write music, but he insists on it in conducting your band. I mean, these are this is a Motown band, so there are a lot of funk brothers in there, even though they were on the road at the Apollo. When he's he's conducting this band and he in the middle of a ballad he does a backflip? Come on. <laughs> so, <laughs> Mickey Mickey Stevenson, who was one of the toughest guys at Motown, he was the A and R director, of course, and he was a street guy from the east side of Detroit. As he'll tell you many times, he could have stopped that. He could have nipped it right in the bud, but Barry Gordy told him, Now leave it alone, that's her husband. Like he, he had this respect for the institution of marriage, I guess. I don't know. That's her husband, so you can't interfere with that. So he let him do all this silly stuff. This was Mary's first husband. And, you know, if there was a bad decision to be made um, on her career, that guy would make it, unfortunately.
2: And he and, did. You know, and He did. He when did. she turned 21, they renegotiated and she infamously left Motown. But kind of the bitterest bill to swallow from reading this is apparently Barry Gordy reassigned her royalties from the songs that she had co-written on her singles and albums costing her a lot of money. That's according
0: to, you know, several of her colleagues, and uh, I think Joyce Moore, but that, you know, with an oral history like this, you have to take a lot with a grain of salt, and you have to, like, you know, research other, what other people say, and um, it's clear that he, her husband wanted her away from Motown. She was such a big star at that point. I think he was convinced, or he convinced her That it wasn't Motown's doing, it was her, and that they could translate this anywhere. They could take her anywhere, and the same thing would happen. And that wasn't the case, because at Motown, she had everything done for her. She had this wonderful backup, whether it was songwriter, producers, crafting the perfect material for her. They, you know, they were too involved in your life, perhaps, but the the upside of that was it wasn't like a New York or L.A. record company where you were on your own, basically, ex- except for, OK, come on in and record and bam, let's see if it hits. If it doesn't, we don't want to see you.
2: And let's hear a little bit of Mary Wells. This is one written by Smokey Robinson. You beat me to the punch. And that was Mary Wells doing Smokey Robinson's You Beat Me to the Punch, which in the Me Too era is a little iffy. It's not quite like Carole King and <laughs> Phil Spector's infamous He Hit Me and It Felt Like a Kiss, but <laughs> it's kind of walking the line. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then the next group up is the Marvelettes. And, and you know, the Marvelettes, I think, get overlooked between the Miracles and the Supremes. Uh and one thing that I had been oblivious to despite reading you know, a good half dozen Motown books and multiple documentaries is that they were, quote-unquote, suburban hicks from Inkster. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's sort of a Detroit thing that people out of, out of town don't understand or don't care about, perhaps. But it was definitely an interesting dynamic, yeah, because you'd have the, the slicker, more sophisticated Detroit – Artists, people who lived here, whether they were born in the South or not, um, went to high school here. And Inkster, um, you know, most of the suburbs that were that far from Detroit at that point, they're almost exurbs, you know, as far as that goes. You know, they were a lot more rustic than they are today. Not not as many people, not as many businesses, whatever, and. Yeah, they were considered hicks. It's like, are you from Angster? What? How long does it take to drive out there? And they, they didn't have the hip nightclubs and things like that. You had to drive into the city for that. So they felt a little behind. But, you know, on the, on the other end, they brought their own song with them, and not a lot of girl groups were doing that at the time. And um, and it wasn't just be, any song. Yeah, please, Mr. Postman. So that was huge to bring a song of that quality. And that, of course, that ended up just putting Motown on the map and actually making them enough money that they could invest in the other acts and actually get off the ground, pay some bills, go into the black, perhaps for the first time. So that was, it was just beyond huge. I think it shows you, though, that the openness there to wherever a good song comes from they were going to listen to it wherever a good group comes from they were going to listen to it they they didn't have a, a preconceived notion so that they they did well and it was it was not an auspicious start i think it was a snowstorm they had to try and get here to downtown detroit from uh, from inkster and they managed to make it anyway but you know their their story is so dramatic it was told in a musical that didn't make it out of Detroit, um, I don't believe, but it was called Now That I Can Dance. And it kind of told the story of early Motown through the the Marvelettes narrative. And uh, that, that really should have gone to Broadway. Maybe it still will someday.
2: Well, I'll hope maybe to get a chance to see it sometime. Another thing that sort of interested me was how young they were. I mean, these girls were yeah. 15, 16 when they started and hit big. Yeah,
0: Gladys. Horton was only 15. The other girls were 16. Um, Wanda was a little older. She had graduated from high school, but um, the rest of them were still in high school. Exactly. But this is it. You know, you're going to go to Motown. Oh, forget about about (laughs) school. Who's going to do that? So that, that was extremely exciting for them. And they, again, people should seek out the video on YouTube of them at the Apollo. It's just so fun to watch.
2: And they were a group that, that like you said, that they made Motown a lot of money, but a, not a lot was invested in them. And there are another group that mentions that they didn't get the choreography training from Cholly Atkins, they didn't get the Charm Schools, and they certainly didn't get the favored nation status that the Diana Ross and the Supremes got.
0: Well, they they got it, but they got it later. Because in in all fairness to Motown, they didn't have that at the time. They were running, you know, doing everything by the seat of the pants. So. It's true of the, the early Supremes as well. Um, I, I was reminding myself that Linda Lawrence, who was in the later Supremes, when she first saw them in back east in Philadelphia, she, she really disparaged these red dresses they were wearing. <laughs> and were, they were probably made by Diana's mom and the rest of the girls. Diana was very good as a high school seamstress herself, but, you know, how it... it or maybe you don't know having made dresses <laughs> myself. You know,
2: it, if you make, I watched my sister make a few, but never made.
0: Yeah, well, handmade dresses are not going to look as good as something you get you get at Saks Fifth Avenue or that that's made for you. So it was true of the very true of the marvelous. They just had a longer period of time where they were wearing the down market dresses, and they weren't they didn't have the Charlie Atkins choreography, but if you see the, the later stuff where Wanda is on lead vocals, um, like don't mess with bill, they're doing the smooth movements that Charlie would require women to do. And they're a little more groomed looking in those. They have some pretty dresses on then. Um, the, the, the early stuff at the Apollo, it's all pretty wild and fun. <laughs>
2: And let's hear um, uh, one of their later periods. They had a they had a renaissance with Smokey Robinson later in the in the career. And and this uh, is uh, "Don't Mess with Bill" by the Marvelettes. And that was Smokey Robinson's Don't Mess With Bill, performed by the Marvelettes. So I hadn't intended to turn this into a Smokey Robinson special, but here we are.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And- uh up next though we've got martha reeves and martha and the vandellas and this is a classic motown story this is yet again a very assertive young woman who inserted herself into the motown office as a secretary with ambitions to be a singer and she gets her big break doing a demo for mickey stevenson for whom she worked of a song that he had intended for kim weston originally
0: oh yeah and he was romantically involved and then married with Kim. So Kim was in his house when she, she heard Mickey and a couple other guys. I think um, Ivy, uh, you know, they were up in the attic and they were like writing the song. And she's like, what is that? I've got to have that. And Mickey didn't, he didn't intend it for Martha. Martha was, was just doing the demo for him. But Martha being Martha, being very intense and ambitious, she just gave it her all. She, she, Sang the heck out of that song, so once she did it, Mickey was like, "Oh no, no, you're you're doing the song. We're not going to give it to anybody else." So it was it wasn't intentional on his part to take it away from Kim, but it's just the way it worked out, as as Mickey describes many times. You know, that's the way it was at Motown. If somebody really owned a song, then you step back and say, "Let them have it for now." Of course, the other thing in Motown they would eventually record almost everybody on a song. So you get your shot eventually. You might not have the big head. And I'm not sure that anybody tried with Dancing in the Street. That was Martha. That was her song.
2: For sure. And the sentence or the phrase that jumped out at me about about Martha in this chapter was that she was caught in a classic case of sibling rivalry. And one thing I find interesting, I've always sort of seen a sort of Stones versus Beatles dynamic with the Vandellas versus the Supremes. Unlike the Marvelettes, they're really gritty and bluesy and rockin' and are a really powerful contrast with the Supremes.
0: Yeah, and that's why I think Motown always gets the sort of, you know, cliche treatment by music experts and who always, you know, oh, yes, it's not, it's slicker than Stacks and other labels. But if you listen to those Martha and the Vandela songs, yeah, it's, it's right in the pop mainstream or what they made the pop mainstream, what it became, but it's also very soulful, very gritty. And it's, it's the best off it just holds up incredibly well and you don't get the feeling that they're swishing around the stage in these long gowns as you do with some supreme songs as wonderful as those are in this case she's getting down she's on the stage at the fox theater and the first 10 rows are going crazy you can just see it and she had that grit and it came a little bit from church um, her grandfather was a, was a minister. She was always very involved in that. She was tight with, um, she knew Aretha, and she admired her talent, too. So I think um, when, you, when you, Martha is very underappreciated, I think, as a Motown female vocalist. Because in those, uh, you listen to those early and mid-career songs. I don't know if there was anyone better than her at that time at Motown. She really ruled as far as her sound and her soulfulness.
2: Absolutely. And one thing that's interesting about the Martha Reeves chapter is you get some insights into some of the unique issues faced by women in the in the music industry. And there's a particular anecdote where she tells a story of how she had an unrequited love for a talented <laughs> man. And she, she was right. in love with this guy and wanted to have his baby because she thought he was such a genius.
0: I know. She didn't even tell me who that was.
2: I don't know. <laughs> I can't. I, I can't know. help but guess.
0: Well, I know. I can't. I don't know if she would have told me if I would guessed it or not. But she was. I, what I loved about most of the women I talked to, and most of the, the women of Motown I talked to, they're so honest. They got me in trouble because they're saying stuff in the book that I didn't say, but you know, people at the Motel museum are like, "Oh, this book's a little edgy for us to carry. And now you're saying all these, all these things about, about Diana Ross. And this. Hey, I'm a journalist, you know, I'm a, I'm not going (laughs) to censor them. This is stuff they said. And, um, with Martha, yeah, she was being honest about the, how it was for a woman. And, uh, I'm not saying it was Marvin Gaye. I don't think it was. But I think the stuff that she said about Martha and the other women of Motown was just hilarious, too. They none of, them, none of them made any bones about the fact that he was this beautiful man they all had crushes on. and Martha and the Vandellas taught him or tried to teach him how to dance. He was even worse than Smokey um, in terms of trying to dance. He didn't have to. All he had to do was stand there and look suave and sing. But because of it was the early '60s, and he had a couple dance hits like "Hitchhike," they had to make up a dance. So they tried to teach him how to do the hitchhike, and he—if you see the—you can see the videos online where he's on whatever the show is. Um, he's kind of making an attempt to do that, and it's kind of sweet. But Mary Wilson has told me this too that whenever the word would get out that Marvin was at uh, Hitsville either at a session or visiting, um, there would be a buzz. All the women would suddenly materialize. (laughs) (laughs) They would suddenly be there. It's like, there's Marvin. Okay.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And on another front, you know, Martha Reeves admits that she acknowledges that she has some business differences with Barry Gordy and that she felt shunted aside like so many other artists, you know, particularly after he moved to California, but ultimately She's reconciled with Barry Gordy and has very positive things to say about him.
0: Well, I, again, I, I wish people would realize that all these stories have nuance. There, are, people are complicated and situations are complicated, and they change. And people get along and then they don't, and then they forgive each other. I mean, with Barry and uh, Holland Dozier Holland is a is a key situation that was very much like that. But and with Martha, that was even before. Because when when I was talking to Martha about that, this was the '90s when she had forgiven him, and Hdh hadn't forgiven him quite yet. (laughs) That was to come. They had a couple more lawsuits to go, but uh, it's just it kind of shows you the kind of relationship. It was a family relationship, and if they had a dispute, it was a family type dispute. That there was still love there, but there was there was anger that. They thought a sibling didn't get the right treatment. And, um, but in the end, um, she realized how much she had gotten from Motown. And Motown set her up, as they did all of their artists, to have a career post-Motown, to have a live career, to be able to present yourself in a nightclub or on the stage in a play. And uh, that's, that's huge, because how long is your recording career, really? It's not going to be that long. You've got to have this long post-recording career where you're presenting your hits, where you can give a show, give a good show and not be amateurish. So she, she was very thankful to him for all of the training she got, whether it was Charlie, whether it was Mrs. Powell, Maxine Powell, who would give them the etiquette lessons all, and all of that.
2: And that's the thing that multiple women speaking in this book Emphasize. is like uh, Gordy wasn't looking for quick hits and gimmicks. He was building artists. Uh-huh. And, when I and think
0: it was, go ahead. I think it's because you know he he came up in the '50s in Detroit when he was going to see all of these very smooth, polished. Female jazz singers that he just idolized. He was a jazz guy from the get-go. He just couldn't make a go of it with a jazz record store. He he failed miserably because that's not what most people wanted to buy. That's why he had to go into R and B into pop. But so he he really desperately wanted another Billie Holiday. He wanted someone that smooth. So all of his female acts. I mean, this is the early '60s it was thought that to be accepted into the broader show business world, you had to be able to play the Copacabana. You had to be able to play for adults, not just the teenage market. So he was looking that broadly at his acts, that he wanted them to be able to cross over and not not just be, you know, the teenage sensation. So it, it worked with a lot of them
2: it did and, and the next chapters, chapter seven lucky seven about the supremes who are the ultimate artist that barry gordy molded i mean you know diana ross goes on to play billy holiday in a movie he produces the supremes headline the copa cabana but you make it very clear that this isn't a pygmalion story that diana ross was hellbent on molding her own persona
0: she was a character i mean when you look back at, when I, I talked to people who knew her in high school, and she went to Cass Tech here in Detroit, which is where all of the, the strivers go, the really smart kids who do well. And it, it was a magnet school that would pull in a lot of the higher achievers. And when she was there, she still stood out, even there. She was on the swim team. She did made all of her clothes. She did this and that. There was no stopping her. You know? She was determined to make it. And it was, you know, one of her sisters is a doctor. They were they were a family that was on the move and they were they were going to get where they were going to get. So and she was determined at Motown. Barry Gordy kept fobbing her off saying they were too young. Go away. Come back when you graduate from high school. And they did. They just would not give up. Motown's was famous for the front lawn and the porch. People, kids all over would go and hang out on the front lawn or the porch. The the songwriter, Allie Willis, she was talking about how she used to do that as a teenager, too. So that's what the Supremes were doing. And it was like, if we just hang out here long enough, someone's going to invite us in to clap hands on a song or something. We're going to make it. But um, Yeah, Diana. Of all of the Supremes, she had the the drive. And as it turned out, she had the more unique voice, the commercial voice. She sounded like a she had that breathy, young, sexy teenage thing going on.
2: And difficult to imitate. And, you know, the sort of standard narrative of the Supremes, is the story of Flo Ballard, who's kind of the Brian Jones of Motown, the, the the great talent who's unjustly shunned aside. But like you say, you make it very clear that Diana Ross is the one that had the unique pop appeal and and the sound that couldn't be imitated, even though Flo was probably the more powerful conventional blues type singer.
0: Right. You know, Mary Wilson has developed a very strong um, R and B voice as well as her voice with age has deepened. She's got a very sultry sound. She sounds wonderful on blues and jazz standards herself. Uh, but Diana, I, mean, I think Diana is very underestimated when it comes to her voice. Granted, it was a unique voice and uh, could be squeaky in certain keys. Um, they knew how to, HDH, Holland Dozer Holland, knew how to lower her voice to make it more effective and more pleasing to the ear. Um, and it's developed like Mary's um, with age. You'd be surprised how good she, Diana sounds in concert today at her age. She sounds wonderful.
2: I'd love so, to get the um, chance to see, to hear that. And moving on to Kim Weston, who is another woman that had a, a sort of a classic Chanteuse R&B jazz singer type voice, but Motown needed pop hits. And yeah. one and going back to the Martha Reeves and the Dancing in the Streets, I thought it was just a classic sort of oral history moment because Mickey Stevenson ins- insists that Kim Weston didn't mind that he <laughs> gave Martha Reeves Dancing in the Streets. And Kim Weston totally denies. She's like, what? He wrote
1: that for yeah. me?
0: <laughs> well, the, the funny thing is Mickey said, well, she had me, meaning, you know, <laughs> as her boyfriend slash husband so that she didn't need that song. And, uh, you know, I had Kim on the phone. She was in Israel at the time living on a kibbutz and all all the way across the ocean. She's going, what? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's Mickey. Mickey's got, he's got an ego. Um, But I think the one that she kind of was most wistful about was my baby loves me, which um Martha even admits she took a bit of the style the that, that with which she sang that from Kim's version and um that you know that was a ballad hit f- for Martha as it turned out Martha already had visibility so you could argue that well Kim wouldn't have been able to get the airplay that Martha did which brings me to you know they really did not I know from Bob Green, who was the WKNR and Detroit music director, that they only would play every other song could be by a female artist. They would never play two in a row. So on top of, um, they wouldn't play as many black songs. Women were at a double disadvantage because, um, they wouldn't play as many black female groups. So they had a a tough time. So you get someone like Kim Weston doing all this great stuff But if uh, Marvelettes had a hit that week, or the Supremes had a song they thought was going to be big, or or if Martha had a version of My Baby Loves Me that was just as good as Kim's, well, they're going to go with Martha.
2: Let's throw another curveball. I think I'm going to need to change it up. And let's do Martha and the Vandellas' version of My Baby Loves Me. Martha and then Vandellas doing "My Baby Loves Me"? Yet another song that got away from Kim Weston. One final thing about Kim Weston that I thought was interesting was her thoughts on Marvin Gaye, with whom she had duetted multiple times. And and she has almost like a a fan's view of Marvin Gaye. She she talks about what a gentleman he was and how professional. But then she says, "And I was sad to hear that he wasn't always a gentleman in his private life." It was almost like she didn't know him at all.
0: Oh, I think she did. I think, she, I think w- what I took from that was that in their personal relations in the studio, because they did do all those sessions together, he was a totally different person from what she was reading about and hearing about through the grapevine when he was having all of his problems, when he was getting you know deeper into drugs and having all the issues. I, I can see that because I think Marvin was um had a very complicated persona and I, I don't think he was showing that part of it at that stage of his career when he was singing with her. So I think she knew a different Marvin. That's what she was saying. And the the other Marvin started coming out more when he started doing his own material, but also when he started getting more deeply into drugs and that was an issue. And he was um, also, he finally made the move out to California and she did not, as far as I know. And uh, she worked here for the city of Detroit. I, I, so I think they weren't as in close contact anymore. So she didn't feel she knew him anymore, that knew Marvin.
2: And that's sad. And And speaking of the move to California, the first artist, the first California artist on Motown, was a young woman, Brenda Holloway, again with this theme of an assertive young woman who introduces herself to Barry Gordy, this time decked out, uh, despite being a pretty young teenager, in, in a sex bomb glamour girl dress.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Brenda was quite the... She was quite the glamour girl. That I was t- telling her about that one dress that they had on display at the Motown Museum, and she remembered it absolutely. It was this little mini dress. So she was... She was quite something, and it she had to be to be that far away to be out in Los Angeles and still make a loud enough noise that they would hear her back in Detroit, you know hey, although ultimately that's what she felt worked against her that the better songs were being passed out in Detroit, and she would get everything at daylight well, too bad that's that song's already spoken for, and so they hadn't quite made the 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 move out there. They hadn't gotten everybody out there and made it their base yet. So for her, it was a bit of a disadvantage, but she still made some lovely tracks for them.
2: Absolutely. And established herself as a legit songwriter after leaving Motown, having several hits, blood, sweat and tears did an immense number on her.
0: She was a great little songwriter. Absolutely. And she was already doing it while she was there at Motown, obviously. So, um, you've made me so very happy and, you know, um, but she's also, she was very assertive. Um, I'm sure you, the, the Diana Ross thing was kind of funny because she idolized Diana, Diana as so many did. How could you not? But she also, she, she was a tall girl. Diana was petite and she couldn't understand how Diana kind of bossed everybody around in the backstage areas. <laughs> <She> kept, <laughs> She'd call her, she's but she's just that little bone, you know, she can't, she can't take my hairspray. Uh, <laughs> as I recount in the book, the Shirelles kind of egged her on and were like, don't let her, don't let Diana do that to you. And uh, Brenda's like, nope, I'm not going there. You can fight her. I'm not fighting her. So the Shirelles took this hair, they took the hairspray back and told Diana, don't do that. That's, that's Brenda's hairspray.
2: And that's just a classic tale of 60s womanhood, I think, fighting over the hairspray. And she also has a classic 60s tale of touring with the Beatles. I found her thoughts on the the Beatles and, and genius to be particularly interesting.
0: I know, I know. She saw Genius at Of course Motown and, and it it's it's really interesting to read about how the Motown women interacted with the Beatles and the Stones because the, the Beatles particularly just admired um the girl groups at Motown so much. It's they really, you know, I, I think the Beatles version of Please Mr. Postman is almost better than the original. And they they also had crushes on them. They toured the Beatles did with Mary Wells, and um, I'm sure tried to date her. <laughs> they, they tried all sorts of things. When I when I, I got to interview Paul McCartney, he talked about how they would they would listen to Motown records over and over. They would put the needle back down and back down. And they were particularly um, they loved the Shirelles, but they also loved the the girl groups and they would kind of copy them. And it was really intriguing to me as a young music fan at the time to hear Motown girl songs kind of, kind of through a British male lens. It was, it was really a cool thing for them to do and they did that. But yeah, um, Brenda also had insight because she toured with them and had a little bit of a I think Ringo was trying something with her. He wanted to borrow (laughs) a hairdryer.
2: A hairdryer? Come on. Whatever. (laughs) And then moving on to the Velvettes, who is not a group I'd paid any attention to before, and I really enjoyed um, diving into their discography a little bit. But again, this is a group of outsiders of Detroit, which I had been oblivious to these distinctions. They're from Flint and Kalamazoo, which... You know, from Texas, that seems all telescopes into the same thing. But in, in Michigan, apparently, those are pretty big differences.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a really big difference. And they were all they, – they still drive to Detroit because they are the only original group left where they have all original members. So they still perform the velvetts and they come to any event that goes on at the Motown Museum. They're there. And they They actually have the glamour still. It's, it's great. But they were also very unique at, at Motown because they were college girls and they had careers. So they went off and they kind of gave up their Motown career for some time while they raised their families. And um, Millie was a nurse. Uh, Cal was, um, she worked for Upjohn, the big pharmaceutical company in Kalamazoo. And... Um, Bertha was a teacher for years and they had long day jobs, careers before they went back and then they retired and went back into what they were doing. So my point is they didn't have to depend on a particular husband or boyfriend, which the other ones did. They, they had jobs of their own. They could get divorced and still have a stable life and they could not have hits at Motown and still have a stable life. So that's why their story is not as sad as some of the other ones, like Mary Wells. They they did very well, and now they're back at it. Now they're being women of Motown again, which is very cool. And and their hits, um, you know, really saying something, got a revival when Banana Rama did it. But, um, yeah, they they really didn't get the attention maybe that the other groups did because they kind of came and went late. And they never did make the. They never did go to California, of course.
2: But and there's fabulous. also a telling quote from Barry Gordy in there that it's a second hand quote, but that <laughs> you know these were families with resources, and that he didn't want to deal with the family attorneys. I didn't want right. those attorneys on me.
0: <laughs> right, right. He was a, he was afraid of that because they did. I think they signed anyway, but um, yeah, he. He was kind of afraid of them as college girls that they were going to come in and uh, outsmart him, They're, especially their attorneys would.
2: And that's sort of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation where, you know, if you come in as this waif with no resources and totally naive, you're going to be taken advantage of. But if you've got some people backing you and you've you've got legal support, you're going to be avoided because <laughs> you, know, you can't be taken and advantage of.
0: And Mary Wilson just said this recently. Again, she said, "Yes, I, I think our our contract was perhaps a bit exploitative, but at the same time, would she said I would totally do it again? Are you kidding me? I was, you know, a teenager on the front step of Motown. I can be signed to Motown. Hell, hell, yes. Where do I <laughs> sign? But, and, and it's true. What else? What other options did they have? Here's this Motown was exploding out of Detroit, or was about to explode." come on in and do some recording. So, uh, yeah, I can see both sides of it. And in terms of the industry at the time, contracts were not very good for the artist. And uh, at least at Motown, you had a more family atmosphere where they were going to take care of you. They were going to nurture you and give you a clerical job in between.
2: <laughs> <it's>, you know, <laughs> Yeah. And then the last chapter in the book is, is a sad one about the great, Tammy Terrell, who died of brain cancer at age 25, and and you know, there's lots of frankly ugly stories about her relationships with James Brown and David Ruffin. There's the story of James Brown hitting her in the head with a hammer, and you know it's sort of like the legends of Stu Sutcliffe of the Beatles being kicked at the head of the show, and then later developing a brain tumor. I mean, a lot of people think you know that these injuries that she got from her fierce and fiendish relationships with men tri- contributed to her early death.
0: Yeah, that that's just a myth that will never die. You know, even though I I talked to the doctor, the doctors who treated her this um the brain tumor she's had, that that was something that was it runs in her family and it, it's um probably she was having symptoms of it well before she started fainting on stage with Marvin Gaye. And it's it's just not something that you get from somebody hitting you in the head. This was something that sadly, was in her genetics. And in today's world, she probably would have had it treated earlier and maybe uh, had genetic testing and known it was coming. But at the time, they they still knew. She knew it was in her family. But it was, like I said, it's uh, just a myth that will never die. And as far as her being a sad case, actually, Elaine Jessmer, who was a longtime publicist for Motown, and Mickey Stevenson and others describe her as she was this tough Philadelphia street girl, very refined and pretty, but at the same time, she taught Elaine how to take care of herself and how to fight if she needed to, if they were in a dangerous situation and late at night outside a club. She could take care of herself. So I do not think anything that happened to her, certainly at Motown or with um, David Ruffin, she was able to give it back in return. I I don't, with James Brown, I, I really don't know you hear lots of of bad stuff that went on and she was quite young at the time but again it's just as far as her brain tumor no no connection
2: <laughs> well that's good that's good to know um and the, uh, there's sort of multiple themes that go through the book and that that re- resurface with Tammy Terrell one of them is this poor choice of, of relationships and obviously if you're going to pick out any of the stars of motown David Ruffin would be probably the worst pick <laughs> as far as the well, boyfriend like that, material.
0: That's easy for us to say in retrospect cuz we we know how he the sad way he died and his drug addiction in later years His um he yeah. you know I was lucky enough to go to a party at his house when I was a young um writer at Cream magazine I wow. went with, I went with Lester Bangs and another another cream guy Eric Genheimer. And we were invited. We were at backstage at a Rod Stewart in the Faces show. And Ronnie Wood said, hey, you guys want to go to a party at David Ruffin's house? And we're like, yeah, man, yeah. So it, he was so sweet and well-spoken and gentlemanly. You would never, not, you know, you wouldn't think, oh, this is a crazy drug guy. This is a guy who you don't want to be around as a woman. No, and he had this lovely house, this um. In fact, they renamed the street where that house is David Ruffin Avenue in Detroit. It was a nice tutor. And I remember we came up to the house and we were dressed like rock and roll kids going to a Faces show. We were in T-shirts and jeans. And he was having a party hoping that Rod would come. Rod Stewart didn't come, but Ronnie Wood did. And Bobby Womack came with us. He showed us how to get there. Uh, So they were all dressed up in the party, very elegant, including David. We were not, we were these scruffy rock kids. And he couldn't have been nicer. He was the best host, brought us in, you know, had lovely food and everything. So, um, yeah, I can see Tammy Terrell absolutely having, and this was like several years after that, after she died and everything. And he was. He was still in a good way. I mean, I did see a lot of partying going on at that party. Yes. Things I'd never. <laughs> <laughs> he was already doing a bit of that, but it was before he, you know, it really taken hold of him in a addictive way. And he was he was still, like I said, a very uh, a lovely, cultured, happy guy at that point.
2: Well, that's good to hear. He's a special favorite of mine. And Rod Stewart's as well. I'm sort of surprised to hear that Rod skipped the party, but maybe he was intimidated
0: to well, hang out with his idol. No, it wasn't intimidated at all. He was like in the throes of his um, Brideclin thing. So ah. <laughs> they, they only had eyes for each other backstage. I remember that well, because Ronnie said, Rod's not coming, but let's go. And Rod was very generous monetarily. The, there were several gigs at Cobo where he um, would invite David up on stage with him. There's some pictures of that that are great that our cream photographer took. But um, he also he kicked in a lot of money for when when David sadly died for the funeral. And uh, Rod's always been a very uh, generous guy when it comes to Motown and Detroit acts.
2: And that says a lot because he's infamously cheap as a Scotsman. <laughs> so. I guess. I guess. That's that's at least the, the story the other faces would tell you. But to wrap up, you have a quote in the in, intro that, that I wanted to end with, was that among the most enduring images we relate to Motown are that of the girl groups and the classic Motown diva. Mm-hmm. I mean, tell us a little bit about that. I mean, what is the ultimate legend of Motown. Is Diana Ross the, the imago of Motown that's going to echo through the ages when people think about Motown?
0: I think so. because you know, I'm, of course, a little prejudiced because I was a young girl watching Ed Sullivan, and that just made an indelible visual impression on me. And you still, when you rack up so many of those beautiful appearances of Diana and the Supremes, um, the, the dresses, the, the hair, the wigs, the makeup, the, they just looked fabulous. And what I didn't know, I wasn't analyzing at the time, they had these beautifully arranged, intricately performed, performed by the Funk Brothers, those beautiful tracks produced by, and um, written by Holland Dozier Holland. It was like the height of 60s pop, the the ultimate expression of Motown creativity. There it was. And with the added attraction for a young girl like me of, oh, the fashions, you know, <laughs> 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 look how they look. They look fabulous. So it, it just had everything in it. So here you had Barry's obsession with the the beautiful jazz divas, the Sarah Vaughn's and the Billie Holiday's, and it was translated into a pop context. So that that is sort of, yeah, that's going to be the enduring image, I think.
2: I, I agree. And thanks so much, Susan. This is Susan Whitehall, author of Women of Motown and Oral History. Second edition came out in 2017. Thanks for coming back on the show. Thank you.
1: Let it roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Roll Cast and check out our website at Let It Roll Nate will be back next week with Ted Joya to discuss his book, Music A Subversive History and the Bad Behavior of Several Paragons of Classical Music. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. of Motown and Oral History is published by DeVault Graves Agency. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com.